a better preacher. First time I was here, as some of you know, I mentioned last time, I, uh, according to your pastor, made the mistake of joking about Mississippi State and Alabama in Mississippi State and Alabama country. So unlike my brother, I'm not going to give you the option or opportunity to tackle me at any point because some of you are probably very eager to actually do that. It is a blessing to be here again with you. This church is gradually becoming uh, a very special place to me. And, and by the church, I'm referring to um, those of you that whose faces are becoming familiar. And uh, I pray God's blessing upon this church right here in Caledonia. And may God bless you and uh, Pastor Kelby. This morning, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> the book of Romans is one of the most logically ordered books. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul makes the point that all men are sinners. In chapters 4 and 5, he shows that their only hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that this uh, hope that they have comes all by grace. And that raises, or Paul raises, an imaginary objection in chapter 6. If that is true, that we are saved by grace, does that mean that we can simply continue to live our lives the way that we did before? And so in chapter 6, Paul doesn't say grace isn't true, but he shows that what God does inside of a man is so dramatic, is so easily seen, that it is not possible. It's not a possible. How shall we that have died therein live any longer in that way is, is basically what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. It's impossible. And he shows that by our union with Christ, something's happened to us, and he gives three examples in chapter 6 of how this union with Christ, instead of promoting a, a life of ungodliness because we're saved by grace, rather it promotes holiness. The first illustration he uses in, in chapter 6 is verses 1 through 14. He shows that we have been baptized into Christ and in the same way that you go under the water and you come back up, we leave our old life and rise to newness of life. That's one example. The second example in, in verses 15 through 23, he shows that we were slaves to sin, but no longer are we slaves to sin. We are now slaves to Christ in obedience. And then in our text, in chapter 7, we have a third illustration. He shows another reason to encourage holiness in the believer to show what God has done for you if you're a believer by uniting to his son, is that we are no longer married to the law. We have died to the law, and now we are married to Christ. And in verses 1 through 6, the Bible says this, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband 
so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of letter. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have promised that when we gather together that you meet with us in a special way. God, we pray for your special presence to be evident as we read and listen and hear your word. And God, we pray that Jesus Christ be lifted up um, in our hearing today, in our hearts, that you cause us to love you even more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about being freed from the law. And I have two very simple points that I want to make. One, I want to look at this text and it's talk about the law's authority, or as the verse actually says, it's dominion over man. What is that? And then secondly, where we will spend most of our time, I want to look at how our union with Christ, according to Paul, has freed us from the dominion and power of the law. So first of all, as we talk about the law's authority, we must recognize we, and ask the question, what law is Paul referring to here? Because the Bible speaks of law in many different ways. Sometimes, for example, Paul will speak in a negative sense about the law. Many times that's in reference to uh, the Pharisees and the Jews who treated the law like it was a staircase to get them to heaven. And that was never the intention of God giving the law. Sometimes the 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 law would be spoken in a positive way. You, you think of David in the Old Testament. Oh, how I love thy law and meditate on it day and night. And even Paul in the New Testament saying that the law is holy and just and good. And I agree with those who see here in our text, Paul is referring to the moral law, which most of us understand is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Let me explain to you what I mean. In Romans chapter 2, Paul makes this statement that the law of God was written on the heart of even unbelievers who have never heard God's word. You see, that law, that Ten Commandments, or at least that summarized in the Ten Commandments, was put inside of man a sense of this when God created Adam. And it's still there. God summarized this law and the Ten Commandments given to Moses. And ever since from the beginning, this moral law, it's a reflection of God's holy character. It, it basically reveals the demands of God upon man. 
And of course, we know that to break this law is to incur God's wrath. It is to incur death that when we sin, God's wrath is immediately over us. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.20, God told him in the Old Testament, the soul that sinneth shall die. You see, we often think of sin as maybe a, a small thing. What's the big deal with the law? Well, the law says we must keep it in threat of death. And yet you think about God's character for just a moment. What's the big deal about sin? What's the big deal about the law? You remember the prophet Habakkuk in, in chapter 1, verse 13? He described God. He said, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. And some people have read this verse and saying, you know, Habakkuk saying God is so pure, he just can't look at evil. He, he has no idea it's going on. As if God is unaware of Hitler and all of the atrocities that happen every single day in our world. That's not what it's talking about. Habakkuk is, says, Thou art pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity, meaning he cannot be, be aware of sin and not do something about it. There is something in God's nature. He is so holy that demands that all sin must be punished. And the law reveals what that sin is. And when we break the law, the law comes as us, not as a friend, but as an enemy. Some of you have probably seen the commercial, and this was many years ago. And the older I get, when I say a couple years ago, I find out sometimes it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. I, I don't know how long, but there was a commercial of uh, a depression medicine. And it showed this depressed person symbolized by a, going around in a mopey situation, and, and there's a cloud following them, just raining on them no matter where they go. And it's not over anyone else, but everywhere they go, if they go in the grocery store, it's, it's raining on them. If they get in their car, it's raining on them. They look around, it's not on anyone else until they take the medicine, and it, it, it goes away. You see, when we sin, we come under the judgment, the eternal judgment of God. That's what the law calls for. And so in verse 7, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Know you not, brethren, how that the law has dominion, and by this dominion it has a condemning power and authority over anyone that breaks it. And then he gives an illustration how long it lasts. He says, over, his, over a man as long as he lives, and then in verse 2 through 3 that we just read, his illustration was this, just like you are you're married to a person you are biblically you are bound to that person until there's a death Paul says in the same way when you are bound to the law you sin against the law you are bound and you are under dominion of that law until you die or, or it dies and that raises a problem if the problem is a sinner once they they, they have this relationship to the law that they are condemned. It, it's, it's like that until something drastic changes. What is the answer to this problem? The problem of being bound to the law and its dominion and its authority. And by the way, if you're outside of Christ, will be your dominion on the last day. As you're being judged, you will be judged 
exactly by this law. Well, Paul now turns secondly, and this is where we will spend most of our time, to how we are freed from this law. In verse 4, he gives us the basis of our freedom. Praise God, there is a freedom. But I want you to see the basis of our freedom. It doesn't come from being good. It doesn't come from keeping that law. It doesn't come from turning over another leaf. It comes in a person, particularly in the body of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. We must start here. If we hear this bad news of the law being over us, you break it once, you have no hope. If we're going to have any hope, Paul says it is in the body of Christ. You see, Jesus came, and some people think he, 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 he come to simply show us how to live better. Well, that's part of why he was here. But you see, the main work of Christ was not only to keep the law that we couldn't keep, but the law's demands that say we be punished, he took all of that upon himself when he was on the cross. You see, the beauty of the cross is not what we do, but when you picture Jesus on the cross, I want you to hear what the Bible said happened when he was on the cross. Paul says in Colossians 3.14, describing what Jesus did in his work, he says it was this, it, he was blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. That word means commandments. He was blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, how Paul says, nailing it to the cross. See, God didn't say, well, since there's sin, I, I've got to change my holy nature. I'm not going to judge man. I'm not going to you know, as if we say just pushed it under. No, God is unchanging. He's holy today. 2,000 years ago, after men had been in hell for 2,000 years, he will still be holy. He is unchangeably holy. That's not going to change. So to have a situation where we're under this judgment from God, we've broken his law, what are we going to do? Well, somebody's going to be punished. And here's the choice. God in his great grace has given mankind and he offers mercy to all men in the person of his son. And he can do that because he's going to judge sin and he's either going to judge your sin in you or he did it in Christ. You see, there's the beauty of the gospel. When we come to church, we don't come and say, well, how great we are. We come to praise Jesus that took away all of our sins. He nailed them to the cross. He's who we glory in. In Galatians, Paul said Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law is a curse over us. But he said Christ has redeemed us from that, being made a curse for us. And I simply ask you today, your, your sin that you have committed, who's going to pay for it? Because come judgment day, there will be someone who has paid for your sin. And it's either going to be in you or it's going to be in your substitute, Jesus. In verse 4, and we must continue, he continues telling us about these blessings 
that come from being freed from the law and united to Christ. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another. I want to just make a, a point here. The Bible says here that we are married to another. We're married to Christ. And if that sounds like almost something you, you're scared to say, like, you know, is it, is it appropriate to speak that way? Well, the Bible does. The old Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, and I actually brought this quote with me, he said, Satan does not want us to grasp and to treasure and drink of what we're reading here about we really are married to Christ and he tries to do everything he can to, to get us to, to not recognize this and not to, de uh, to deny it. Charles Spurgeon said, Satan will say, what right do you have to believe that God is married to you? He will remind you of your imperfections and of the coldness of your love and perhaps of the backsliding state of your heart. But he said to these suggestions from Satan, he said, let it be remembered, he said, this is written to Christians not in the flourishing state of heart, not to believers on the Mount of Transfiguration of Christ, not to a spouse that is completely pure and lovely and sitting under the banner of love, feasting with her Lord, but is addressed, and he's referring to this text in the Old Testament, to those who are called faithless people. And he's, of course, using another text here. But then he says this, and this is what I want to read. Now, Christian, think of this. Your relationship to Christ is that of a spouse. And he, he says this is encourages us to approach him in prayer when we think of him in this way that God really speaks to me as being married to the Lord. He says, now, Christian, think of this. Your relationship to Christ is that of a spouse, and you must pour out your very heart to Christ. No, don't go and pour out your heart to your neighbors, your friends. The most sympathizing heart cannot understand or share all of your heartaches. But he says, but Christ being presented as a bride, this is an encouragement for us to go to him. Next, we see in verse 4, the purpose of God uniting us to Christ and give us freedom. If you look at the end of verse 4, he says, Mary to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. I want to make a very simple point here, and I want you to get this. One of the reasons Paul says that we are united to Christ, freed from sin, the reason we have died to the law, is to bring forth fruit. In other words, that must take place before we are able to bring forth any fruit that God accepts from us. I'm going to be even more point. God does not accept the good works or quote unquote good works of any man outside of Christ. You see, this helps us understand that in God's way of dealing with us, he does not wait for us to bring something to him because we can't and then make us good and then justify us and then say you have a right standing. Here's what God does. We come to him broken. We come to him full of sin. We come to him not able to do anything to offer. That we have nothing to give to him. He takes that person when they simply look to Christ. And from there he says, now go do good works. Now there is sanctification. 
Now I will, I will accept the things that you bring to me. And the point is this. Listen, if you're an unbeliever, please listen to me. God is not calling you. Now, he is calling you to repent. You need to change. Don't get me wrong. But all of that is found in Christ. You, you have to go straight to him. He is your only hope. There's nothing you can do to yourself inwardly. You can pray and you are to repent and to endeavor. But all of that comes by God's grace and that doesn't earn you anything. Everything you need for a right standing before God is in Jesus Christ. And it is from there that Paul is saying God does that. He saves you so then you'll go do good works. Truly good works. But I've got to keep i got to continue. Verses 5 and 6. He says, for when we were in the flesh, for a person is saved, that's all they are. They are dictated by the flesh, things they want to do. It's all about them. It might not always be murder or just super bad, but it's all about their desires. And he says, for when we were in that situation, he said, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit into death. I want to pause here for a moment because it appears to be saying, if you just read this superficially, that the law works in us and brings forth fruit unto death as if God's law, and I, and I speak respectfully here, is as if God's law is evil, as if it causes us to sin. And many have noted that some may take that just reading it superficially. But what this is saying about the law and how it affected us before we were Christians, here's what it's saying. I'm going to give you an illustration. Many of you know I'm a school teacher. And we, um, I taught at a large school right outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And we were told, and it was whispered because we didn't want the kids hearing this, that the bathroom and the water, there was no water in the building. Now, you tell kids that, as soon as you tell them there's no bathroom, guess what? Every single one of them is going to want to do they're all at that point going to want to go and guess what as soon and i made sure none of my kids i shut doors that they were talking about i didn't want them hearing it but as soon as it was made an announcement everybody had to go to the restroom now did telling them what was going on this outward verbal did that actually go in them and do anything in them and make them go to the bathroom? No. But what it did do, and this is real, it instigated a thought, which led to another thought, and then you start thinking. And, and yes, in that sense, you could say, by me telling them I made everybody go to the bathroom or want to go to the bathroom, in that sense. And with the law, what Paul is saying is not that the law goes in a lost man and makes him evil, but what he's saying is the law is not the cause of their sin, but it's the occasion when they, when they start contemplating, oh, I'm not supposed to. Uh, um, and you go through the Ten Commandments and think through some of the things that we're, we're tempted to do, and the more you think about it, it, it's not that it plants the thought, but the evil in us, it's the evil that's in us, looks at that law, and, and, and it's stirred up. And, th and that's all this is saying here, okay? In verse 6, and I've, I've got to keep moving. He says, but now we are delivered from the law, 
In other words, there's a different situation. It doesn't call sin, it doesn't create sinful thoughts. He says that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in a newness of spirit. Meaning this, we go from the flesh and we see the law and there's sin all in us, but now something has happened. There's a newness of spirit where we serve God with a new impulse. There's a new power. There is a new inward desire to keep God's law. There is a craving to keep God's law. That's our approach. Now, now if we read the Ten Commandments, not that we keep them perfectly, but we say, God, I want to keep those. God, please give me the grace to keep that. Although we fail in it every day in various degrees, this new impulse, we're serving him from a completely different motive. I was born and raised in the Delta, and, and many have noted there's not a whole lot of pine trees there, but there are pine trees. I'm going to tell you how I know, not only because I saw them, but my father, uh, we had tons of pine trees around our house. And guess who had to pick up the pine cones every year? I, I, I didn't mind mowing. I didn't mind doing a lot of things. I hated bending over, picking up pine cones. I despised it. And what's funny, just a couple of years ago, we had moved to Jackson, and we were going to a great church, and we had a work day. And I'm not a Mr. Fix-It. There's not many things I can do. So I was assigned to pick up pine cones with a wheelbarrow with all the little kids around me in the front. And that wasn't very good for my ego. But as I was bending over picking up these pine cones, I, I was reminded of hating this when I was growing up. Absolutely hating. And I'm smiling, and I'm doing it with these kids, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, what's the difference? And I look back at this church that we're picking it up for, and I'm like, I love what this church is about. I love the people of this church. And most importantly, I love the Savior of this church that's, that's a great blessing not only to that local community, but, but to the world who have sent out missionaries. You see, it was the same action. I'm just picking up pine cones, but there was something different. It was a different motive. There was something different going on. And you see, when a believer and an unbeliever both can quote-unquote, help an older lady across the street. They both can take care of their families. But one of them is doing, again, imperfectly, but one of them is, do, are, is doing these actions for the glory of God, ultimately. That's not always. We all have, still have a selfish part to us. But the same action and totally different. And I'm going to tell you this. At the risk of offending you, God accepts the work of the believer, and he does not accept the work of the unbeliever. see the law that Paul is saying here is like yes we keep the law yes we want to do those things but there's something that's changed in us and he uses another term and then we're going to get to our last application he says in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter and by this word letter it means an external code it means uh, for example the ten commandments all the laws God gave to the children of Israel but you know what None of those laws in and of themselves, apart from God using his word, none of those laws changed any of the children of Israel inwardly. You, you can write the Ten Commandments up on a wall, you can teach them to your kids, but it will not go into them and change them. You see, the Jews kept the law in many ways as far as an external Moral code, they, they, it says do this, I'll do that. It says, you know, go here, I'll do this, watch this, I'll watch that. That's an external code. And God gives us outward commands and external codes, but what Paul is saying here, those, 
those things just serving in the outwardness of the letter and those there's no internal change he said that that's for people outside of christ those of those of us in christ god does something so amazing that he gives us this this craving this desire that if that we desire obedience but that brings me to the end and i'm trying to get to our last point here if all this is true and it is what does that mean for us well for the believer when paul is saying we are freed from the law be very careful here as i hope i have been we're not freed from the law in every single sense if if you think of the word law as commands and and that's one way the bible uses it we're not freed from the law in that sense there's Many commands in the New Testament. The law continues to be a rule of our life. And I I wish I would have brought this illustration, but someone once said the picture of the law is having a stick. And we come to it. It tells us where we failed. It has that dominion, that power. And the stick beats us, knocks us out, and we're ready to die. And so we run from the law. It calls us to see who we are. And we get, instead of the, the law with a stick, we run to Christ. And Christ points the law and says, that's not the way to be saved. I'm the way to be saved. And he saves us when we put all our hope on him. But then Christ points us back to the law. And he gives us the power to take that stick that beat us before. And where the law was an enemy and where it condemned us, now it's a walking stick. We use it as a rule not over us it can't condemn us anymore there's no fear but we still have that stick of the law that we use and we look at as a reflection of the eternal unchanging character of God and say God help me to live that way you see the law still has something to do with us Paul says even in this chapter verse 12 the law is holy and the commandment is holy in chapter 8 verse 4 listen to this he, he basically says we're saved in order to keep the law in one sense verse chapter 8 verse 4 He said, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, the blessing is the condemning power of the law that says you will be judged for every single sin you've committed. Christ took that on the cross. He takes all of that away for us. And he gives us that stick of the law and says, I want you to, to, to imitate me. I want you to follow me. I want you to keep my commandments. And then to the unbeliever. Do you not hear how I'm speaking to my brethren? That they can rest. That in Christ, there's rest. Do you not in your heart And I pray the Holy Spirit work this in you. See that you need rest. You are running after these these little desires in your life. Your life is surrounded by things. It might just be entertainment, just getting through each day. And Jesus is is just something you, you don't even give a thought to. But listen to me. Listen to me. There is coming a day. Where he's going to return. And I promise you, you, you would give up every single thing that you are doing right now. That, that you surround your life with. And you're going to wish and pray, God, I wish you would have worked in me. I wish I would have repented. I wish I would have trusted in him. 
But you see, what I'm telling you is not merely to strike fear in you, although if the fear causes you to come to him, great. I'm telling you how merciful he is. Despite anything you've done in the past, despite what you're doing right now, although it is a great affront to a holy God, you see, he also offers you his son. This rest we're talking about is offered to you. And you come to him through repentance. You, 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 you seek to turn away from, from your ways. And all you do is you, you rest in him and say, God, you are my only hope. Your work that you did, your life you live, the death, that is my only hope. And I trust in that. You see, my prayer is today that all of us, as we consider this idea of being freed from the law, the law right now and with every single one of us, we have some relationship to it. And by being united to Christ, we're freed from it. It's, that, it's dead to us. And my prayer is that's, that's you. It's not whether you are here, and, I'm, and this last thing I'm going to say, or whether you're at home, in the very... In, in your living room, whether you're laying in the bed, whether you're driving down the car, look, you don't have to be here at church. You look to Christ as your rest, as your only hope, as your freedom from the law. May God bless you.